Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 75, The Fall of the East. No new patrons this month, just another very generous donation from Jan Heinrichs, uh, a great supporter uh, living in the U.S., but I do have a quick announcement. Now, recently, uh, a fan of the podcast and Patreon supporter, Joro, reached out to say that he kind of felt that I was covering the Ottoman period in way too much detail and it was taking a really long time to get through it, and, well, it's the Bulgarian History Podcast and the Bulgarians aren't getting much mentioned these days. And... I took it as a very valid criticism. I thought a lot about this. I've kind of talked a bit on the podcast about my thinking around this, but I decided to sort of reach out and get your thoughts. So I put out a kind of poll on the Facebook group and it was overwhelming. Basically everyone who responded thought that uh, I was covering it with an appropriate amount of detail and I should keep going at the same pace. But I just want to kind of bring this up because, you know, I, I really like this kind of feedback, this kind of criticism, even if you don't think of it that way. It's really helpful for me to get an idea of what my listeners really think. And in this case, it gave me idea, the idea to actually do a special episode at the end of this season, which is coming up in a few episodes. That's going to be all about the kind of changing status and, and like broader events affecting Bulgarians and what was happening in Bulgaria in the empire during these, uh, this more than a century I've been covering in this season. You know, all the kind of stuff that it didn't happen in one specific year, so it's kind of hard to cover in the narrative. So I'm going to try to do that to balance a little bit and to give more coverage to Bulgarians during this time. But in general, you know, if you have your own thoughts, feel free to reach out uh, on Facebook or on uh, through the through the uh, website. However, I just really appreciate it when you all reach out and let me know what you think. So getting into it. Last time, we saw dynastic change in Wallachia and Moldavia bring on periods of chaos as they cycled through rulers, in the case of Wallachia, and faced numerous invasions, in the case of Moldavia. While the Ottomans faced a catastrophic earthquake in Constantinople. Still, the bigger seismic shift was the ousting of Bayezid and a brief civil war between his two sons, leading to the eventual rise to power of his younger son, Selim I. After breaking the Hungarian defenses in Croatia and winning a major victory against the Safavid Persians, Selim is now uncontested on the throne and poised to resume major Ottoman expansion after the relatively quiet rule of his father, Bayezid. And that's precisely what happened in 1514. However, it was not an army of conquest which achieved this Ottoman expansion. In fact, it was Tatar pressure and the final acceptance that Moldavia's geopolitical situation was simply untenable. Sure, Poland would sometimes help with Tatar raids, but Poland wasn't a reliable ally for Moldavia, as we've seen. Its voivoda, Bogdan III, son of Stephen the Great, knew his state couldn't absorb more of these devastating Tatar raids. And so he chose the alternative, sending an envoy to Constantinople to offer subjugation. 
Selim demanded a high price. 4,000 gold coins, 40 horses, and 40 falcons per year, as well as a readiness to foster 4,000 soldiers whenever called upon. Still, for Moldavia, the benefits were great. As an Ottoman client state, they would be spared the Tatar raids and the ever-present threat of an Ottoman invasion. Still, we can't forget that Moldavia has agreed to become a vassal state before, and so it remains to be seen what the future will hold. But as Moldavia under Stephen the Great was such a thorn in the side of the Ottomans, for the European powers resisting them, the loss of Moldavia is a fairly significant one. But while the young Sultan Selim must have welcomed this news, that same year brought troubling reports for him from the West. The Pope had called for an anti-Ottoman crusade and appointed a Hungarian mercenary who had fought the Ottomans many times and was famous for his bravery, a man named Georgi Doza, to gather an army. Now, this was more along the lines of the peasant crusades. About 40,000 peasants and churchmen were involved, not as much uh, nobles and these kinds of folks. As the army gathered throughout Hungary and began to receive some military training in preparation for the crusade, the church had not provided them with any food or clothing, which gradually led to discontent among all these peasants. Discontent which gradually expanded into discontent about their status and what they deemed a lack of respect or support for this crusade. Then, to make matters worse, when harvest time came, it brought with it violence, as nobles would not accept their peasants leaving and abandoning the fields. As the army moved south towards the border, it took provisions from local communities, as all armies did at this time. However, as the group became increasingly, let's say, political, it decided to only take from nobles and never from other peasants, further increasing tensions between these two groups. Finally, it was all too much, and the Hungarian church official, who had more or less organized the whole endeavor, commanded the army to disband. The army refused. And so the anti-Ottoman crusade completed its gradual transformation into a full-blown peasant revolt. The first battle of noble cavalry against the peasant army resulted in a peasant victory, further worrying King Vladislaus, who quickly called up any mercenaries he could from neighboring European countries to help him put down the revolt. These, along with heavy cavalry from Hungarian nobles, fought the increasingly well-equipped peasant army throughout the summer as it captured fortresses and obtained artillery. Eventually, however, the peasant army was defeated by increasingly large government forces. Doza, the commander himself, was also captured. His punishment was horrific, even by contemporary standards. Forced to sit on a burning hot iron throne, with a burning hot iron crown placed on his head, a procession of rebel leaders who had previously been starved were then forced to eat and swallow bits of his burned flesh. Or, those who refused, be cut into pieces while living. Around 70,000 peasants were tortured or killed in subsequent reprisals, 
although the general retaliation was focused more on the peasants as a class rather than simply the peasants who had participated. All peasants lost the right to free movement and to bear arms within the kingdom of Hungary. In effect, the peasant revolt ended any possibility for reform or modernization within Hungary. The backlash was to further the repression of the peasants as a class, and the result was a fracturing and weakening of Hungary. The peasants and the nobles did not trust each other, and the peasants had become far less capable as a force to resist potential invasion. Combined with the fact that the Ottomans no longer had a sultan interested in peace with Hungary, well, you can see the danger. But things on the broader European stage were also changing. While the peasant revolt was in full swing, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth had won a decisive victory against the Grand Duchy of Moscow, reversing the steady drumbeat of losses they had suffered at the hands of the Muscovites for years. This changed the balance of power in Europe and convinced the Holy Roman Emperor slash Emperor of Austria, Maximilian I, to stop supporting Moscow and to finally arrange a broader peace with the brothers ruling Poland-Lithuania and Hungary. The result was the First Congress of Vienna in 1515, where the double wedding between the children and grandchildren of the royal families of Austria and Hungary was finally conducted. As such, the long-dreamed-of possibility of the Habsburgs inheriting the Hungarian throne became a far more realistic possibility. This must have been a welcome relief for Vladislaus, as it meant that in the case of Ottoman invasion, he could hopefully expect support from Austria as well as from his brother ruling Poland-Lithuania, who was now in a much better position to actually offer support. To add to their good fortune, for the second time, Selim's ambitions took him not to Europe, but to the East. Following his major victory over the Safavids and the expansion of Ottoman territory into Eastern Anatolia, and northern Mesopotamia, Selim did not set his sights on the Balkans or Hungary, but on the declining power of the Mamluks in Egypt. The two states had been rivals for decades following the rise of the Ottomans, which had made them a real rival to the Mamluks in the spice trade and for dom domination of the eastern Mediterranean and ultimately the Levant. The two states had fought a war in 1485-1491, to 1491, but it ended in stalemate. Now, however, the Ottomans held a distinct advantage, particularly in technology, repeating that the difference we've seen time and time again between the Ottomans and their eastern foes has been technology, namely gunpowder weapons. The Mamluks held on to their traditional forms of warfare against the Ottomans' state-of-the-art gunpowder weapons, much as the Safavids and the Akkoyunlu had before them. Now, I couldn't find any details about what instigated the war, but it appears the Mamluk Sultan spent the winter of 1515 to 1516 gathering an army to invade Anatolia. At the same time, Selim was agreeing to a Mamluk proposal to install their vassal to rule a buffer state between them and to reopen trade between the states. However, despite Selim's overtures, the Mamluk army set out in May with around 25,000 soldiers. 
the army met the son Ahmet, Selim's nephew, and brought him along in hopes of drawing supporters to aid them against the Ottomans and ultimately installing him as their puppet on the throne. The army made its way slowly through Syria, enjoying itself and receiving the accolades of locals along the way. But Selim was playing a game, sending a peace envoy and implying that there was trouble brewing with the Safavids, that he had bigger things on his hands, that he was going to be distracted. The Mamluk Sultan seemed receptive, but by the time he sent back word, Selim had abandoned any pretenses and was now marching to meet his foe. The Mamluk governor of Aleppo was now preparing to betray his benefactor, who refused to believe the news that the, Ottoman, that the Ottoman army had arrived when he was told. This was the situation when the two armies met, Ottoman and Mamluk, a day north of Aleppo in August of 1516. The governor of Aleppo commanded the entire left flank, and the battle went well for them at first as their veterans attacked the Ottomans head-on, pushing Selim to consider surrender after the first few hours of brutal fighting. However, then, rumors flew through the Mamluk ranks that something fishy was going on. Some soldiers were being held back to allow the veterans to do all the hard work. Then, the governor of Aleppo withdrew the entire left flank. Egyptian historian Muhammad ibn Lais describes what happened next. Quote, the Sultan stood under his standard and called his soldiers, Aghast, this is the moment to take heart. Fight, and I will reward you. But no one listened, and men fled from the battle. Pray to God to give us victory, called Al-Gawari. This is the moment for prayer, but he found neither support nor defenders. He then began to feel an unquenchable fire. This was a particularly hot day, and an unusual fog of dust had risen between the armies. It was the day of God's anger directed against the Egyptian army, which stopped fighting. At the worst moment, and with the situation growing worse, the emir Timur Zadkash feared for the safety of the battle standard, lowered and stowed it, then came to find the sultan. He said to him, quote, Lord Sultan, the Ottoman army has defeated us. Save yourself and flee to Aleppo. When the Sultan realized this, he was gripped with a sort of paralysis that affected the side of his body, and his jaw dropped open. He asked for water, which was brought to him in a golden goblet. He drank some, turned his horse to flee, advanced two paces, and fell from his saddle. After that, little by little, he surrendered his soul. End quote. The Mamluk Sultan was killed in that battle, though accounts vary on just how it happened. Still, with a single stroke, the Ottomans effectively conquered Syria. From Aleppo to Damascus, they were welcomed as liberators from Mamluk misrule. After mopping up the final remnants of Mamluk resistance, Selim and his army continued their march towards the Mamluk heartland of Egypt, mirrored by around a hundred supply ships in a strategy similar to what the Byzantines had done along the Black Sea coast to attack the Bulgarians centuries before. In October, a Mamluk cavalry detachment attacked the Ottomans in Gaza, but were broken. Around this time, 
Selim sent an offer to the new Mamluk Sultan. If he surrendered, Egypt would remain untouched. He was inclined to accept the offer, but his advisors ultimately convinced him otherwise, and the embassy from Selim was put to death. Still, the new Mamluk Sultan had a plan. He had been frantically recruiting whoever he could and attempting to equip his army with some gunpowder weapons so they could effectively resist the Ottomans. When he assembled what he could, he took his remaining 20,000 soldiers, roughly equal to what Selim fielded, out to meet the Ottomans just as they finished the arduous trek through the Sinai Desert and into Egypt. At this moment, they would be weakest, and the Mamluks knew this. However, the Sultan was again persuaded by his advisors against attacking at this moment, and instead entrenched his forces closer to their capital of Cairo. It was there that the Ottomans finally met them. The Mamluks fought bravely and with great vigor. The Sultan even reached Selim's tent, but it was not enough. They were thrown back and retreated all the way to the Nile. After the Ottomans entered the city unopposed, and a great slaughter and looting occurred. The vizier attempted to stop the bloodshed, but it was no use. The Ottomans couldn't prevent their army from doing what it would. Only days later, Selim, along with the last Abbasid caliph who he had captured back in Syria, managed to bring some calm to the brutalized city. The caliph, for his part, gave the following prayer. Quote, O Lord, uphold the sultan, monarch both of land and the two seas, conqueror of both hosts, king of the Iraqs, minister of both holy cities, the great prince Selim Shah, grant him thy heavenly aid and glorious victories. O king of the present and of the future, lord of the universe. End quote. But just at that moment, the Mamluk Sultan reappeared and quickly retook the poorly defended city, with the Ottomans completely unprepared for this counterattack. Still, within a day, the Ottomans regrouped and retook Cairo, with the Sultan fleeing south towards the upper reaches of the Nile. There, he was shortly captured and hanged at the entrance of Cairo. He would be the last Mamluk Sultan, and with him, the Mamluks, a 267-year power, came to an end. Though the Mamluks continued their cultural influence, and they as a group, as sort of slave soldiers, were used to rule Egypt by the Ottomans, the loss of their independent state, based in Egypt, had far-reaching consequences. For the Ottomans, it meant the extension of their territory to include the wealthy and populated lands of Egypt, Syria, Palestine, as well as the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. The caliph was moved to Constantinople, and his title would eventually come to the Ottoman sultans themselves. Thus, this seemingly simple war doubled the size of the Ottoman Empire, brought them the holiest cities of Islam, and presaged their taking the highest title in the religion of Caliph. Not too bad for two years of relatively easy fighting. This conquest also meant an end to Mamluk fighting with the Portuguese in the Indian Ocean, Ever since the Portuguese had rounded the Cape of Good Hope and discovered a way to the spices of the east 
around the lands of Islam, the Mamluks had been attempting to combat them on, in the Indian Ocean and fight them wherever possible. But now, that fight was over. The Ottomans, at least for now, were far less interested in this fight, and so the Portuguese, for now, would have sort of free reign in the Indian Ocean. But still, during those two years which, during which Selim was accomplishing so much in the Middle East, a great deal had also been happening in Europe. In 1516, King Vladislaus died and was succeeded by his 10-year-old son Louis, who now had Emperor Maximilian and his uncle Sigismund as his guardians as a result of the Treaty of Vienna, which had agreed to sort of bind the houses of Hungary and the Habsburgs. This succession, along with the lingering results of the peasant revolt in Hungary, barely left Hungary sort of barely considered a European power in spite of, well, the fact that it looked very large and powerful on paper. But in this very short time, it was extremely weakened. In addition, in 1517, a certain Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the wall of a church. And with that notice, a new schism came to Christendom as the Protestant Reformation began to spread through Europe like wildfire, further weakening the Catholic Church, which had served as one of the only institutions capable of, sometimes, uniting European resistance against Ottoman expansion. That same year, Bogdan III of Moldavia died and was succeeded by his younger son, Stephen IV, with a regency, as Stephen was too young. Though these were calm years for Moldavia after its submission to the Ottomans, and so not very much changed. Then, in 1519, Austrian Emperor Maximilian himself died. His grandson, Charles V, replaced him as head of the Habsburg family, an emperor of Austria, and eventually Holy Roman Emperor. Far more than his grandfather, Charles controlled territories across Europe, including Spain, southern Italy, the Low Countries, now Belgium and the, and the Netherlands, as well as all the new Spanish conquests in the Americas coming from the fall of the Aztec and Incan empires. For one, this meant that Austria was now controlled by a true sort of global superpower. But it also meant that its ruler now had many more concerns far away from the Ottoman borderlands. Depending on how the situation developed, Charles could be a far greater foe or a far lesser foe to the Ottomans, really depending on whether or not he felt like sort of mustering the immense resources of his new empire to face the Ottomans or whether he felt that his time was best spent elsewhere. Time will tell. Now, once again, the question remained as to when Selim would finally march his nearly undefeated armies west to take advantage of the situation there. Time and time again, as Europe has been weak, Selim has been focusing on the Middle East. And no doubt, as Europe held its breath, wondering what the answer would be, they got it. In 1520, when the 50-year-old Selim died, possibly a plague, he had ruled for less than nine years. And yet, his was a remarkable reign, exploding the empire to the east and for the time being, effectively removing the threat of a serious invasion from that direction, which could generally threaten the core Anatolian territories of the Ottomans. To do this, Selim had lived a rather as a rather brutal man, 
brilliant, ambitious, and with high expectations of those he governed. He had had so many of his viziers executed for various reasons that it became a common curse in the empire to wish someone to be a vizier of Selim. But without a doubt, his reign and his eastern conquests set the Ottoman Empire up for a new golden era under his son and successor, the 25-year-old Suleiman I. It should give a clear idea of what is to come that today Suleiman is known as the Magnificent. And so next time, we'll see what Suleiman is going to do, how he's going to upend the entire European order as he explodes onto his scene, releasing the battle-hardened Ottoman armies, which had just so ravaged the East on the West. With the coming of the Protestant Reformation, a child on the throne of Hungary, and a Habsburg superpower little concerned with the affairs of this corner of Europe, the scene has been set. The characters are in place, and the world will never be the same again. So, tune in next time. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, Uspe.